Good morning, everybody. How are you? It's good to be back. I uh, was hanging out with a bunch of preachers down about 30 miles from uh, Laredo uh, last Sunday. I'm so glad. This is a better crowd than I was with. You don't want to mess with those preachers. But uh, anyway, it's really good to see you. And uh, I'm looking forward to next Sunday. 25 years, it just seems like it's gone uh, too quick. It can't be possibly 25 years, but that's what the date says. So hope you're going to be here. It's going to be great. Uh, invite uh, your friends if you'd like. We're going to have some refreshments in between services next Sunday, but it's going to be a good day. But I wanted to share with you something today that uh, really the Lord kind of laid on my heart, surprisingly. It's, uh, it's not a Christmas message per se, uh, but I want to talk to you about a paradoxical kingdom. Uh, the things of God are, are quite different than the way things are uh, in a world that's run by people of flesh. And we want to talk about that today because sometimes we have trouble uh, making the switch between one kind of culture and another kind of culture. Uh, when, you, when you go overseas, you experience culture shock. And, and you, you eat different things, you get up at different times, you, you know, there's different customs and all that kind of thing, different languages, of course, and, and all of that applies to living in the kingdom of God. So follow with me just for a few minutes this morning. In a world awash with countless venues for the promotion of self-made and self-improved and self-centered, uh, stands a kingdom of eternal consequence with quite a different perspective on the pathway to greatness. It's virtually impossible to read the accounts of the great people of the Bible without being impacted by the striking paradox that is plainly stated in the first chapter of, of Corinthians, or first, uh, Corinthians first chapter and illustrated by virtually every heroic personality highlighted in the pages of Scripture. What we've got here is a problem uh, that Jesus stated in in plain terms, he said, what is born of the flesh is flesh, John 3, 6. 6. And that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So there's there's a paradox that we have here in, in living life on this planet that we have to die to certain realities in the fleshly world to walk into the realities of the kingdom of God. It's hard to get our heads around that because we've grown up doing things the way all the generations before us have, and we, we feel like <clears throat> we, have to, we have to be those that generate what is being done. And there's, there's a lot of truth to that in the natural realm. We have to function. We have to pay our bills. We have to go to work. We, we do work to get by. But there's another reality that I think is so wonderful when we, when we get our, our heart wrapped around this, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. If you've got your, your Bibles or your devices, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to read a passage to you, uh, verses 18 through 31, and perhaps this will lay out a, a bit of an outline for us today. It says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. That alone is shocking when you realize that, that this message we're talking about, about the cross, is so, so obnoxious to people that don't receive it. And, it, and it, it's telling them the truth, but something about it is repelling to them because we are fleshly. The natural mind is at war with God, Scripture tells us. 
And so everything God is trying to do, our natural mind is going to fight against it and it's going to be repelled by it. And, and we, we just have to understand that. We have to get over that. Because if we let our mind talk us out of this reality, it's a permanent solution. And we have to be very careful about that. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise and where is the scribe and where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the, in the wisdom of God, the word, the world, through wisdom, did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble or well-born are called. This is a frustration to us a lot of the time. We feel like we don't matter. We feel like we're not that important. We feel like there are so many greater people than us. And, and we draw from that that we're just inferior. We, we develop a complex about that. And, and as so many Christian people look at the leaders of the world and they think, oh, we're nothing compared to them. But let me just tell you, heaven sees things differently. We may be unknown, but we are well-known. Demons and angels know who we are. The, the angels, they look at what we've got and wonder. They don't have what you've got as a believer. So let me just raise your estimation of who you are today. If you're a born-again child of God, you are somebody. Time will not erase you. You will live forever. Because of the virtue of the one that came, he calls people just like you and me. We, became, we, we begin to be measured by a different standard, heaven's standard. And heaven's standard doesn't, doesn't notice how, what your lineage is. It doesn't notice what your bank account says. It doesn't notice what people think about you. It really does not matter because if you're blood-bought, there's a seal on you. And demons and angels know it, but we can't see it. We may see the fruit of it, but I'm just here to tell you today that, that you're not invisible to God. I'm, I'm just here to tell you today that you're the apple of his eye. If you are born again today, his spirit lives inside of you. He cannot deny himself. It's a wonderful, wonderful place to be. And the enemy wants you to think just the opposite. He wants you to think you don't matter that you're not important, that you're not significant. In fact, you're kind of, you're kind of a deficit to God. You're kind of a problem to the world. You, 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 you stand in the way of so many things that the world seems to want. And we're seeing it in our political system. We're seeing it in our culture right now. It is amazing. I saw this morning, early, when I got on my, on my computer just to see what's happening in the world, I saw a lady with, with a T-shirt on that said Satan on it. And she was decorating a black Christmas tree, which seems to be all the, all the rage right now. Let me just tell you, 
I, I, I thought about that poor woman and I thought, oh, one day, lady, you were going to rue the day that you ever slipped yourself into that shirt and seemed to be proud of it. That's not the message. I just, you know, when you get old, you just kind of talk. They say it's only a number. I got news for you. The paradox is something that, in effect, is self-contradictory. The Bible utilizes a tremendous number of paradoxes to illustrate how the kingdom of God interfaces with our world. Let me just name a few. Everything came from nothing. You must die to live. Slaves become kings and priests. Do you know you're a king and a priest today if you're born again? The least become the greatest. The weak become strong. The last will be first. And the unrighteous become righteous. Wow. Paradox. Doesn't make any sense from a natural point of view, but again, we're interfacing. Do you realize that we've got to have a war between kingdoms going on? Yes. One's going to last forever, and one's a passing fancy. But since we've only known the one that's a passing fancy, we think the one that's going to last forever is kind of aberrant and strange. How, how could it be like that? We've been taught wrong. But Scripture seeks to teach us right. For you see your calling, brethren, verse 26 that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things or simple things or lowly things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh, here's the purpose, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. As it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. We all, I think all of us, are made for glory. We seek to achieve it in different ways. We seek to be recognized in different ways. Uh, Back when I was a kid, it was, you know, you wanted to be a fireman or a policeman or this or that or president, and Lord help you if you're any one of those right now. You know, today we want to be an Instagram star. I'm serious. Most of this youngest generation right now feels they will be famous. And they go about it in, in different ways. Used to be it was through hard work and, and, and so on and so forth. Now it's just becoming uh, different enough that you can garner an audience. And, and I'm, I'm not throwing stones here. I'm just saying that's the way the world is kind of moving now. And... I think there's something in every human being that wants to matter, and and I think that's appropriate. I think it's good, and I think it's God-given. It's God-born. But let me just say that seeking it in the fleshly way 
is a very temporary solution uh, that, that won't really take you where you want to go. God has something so significant and so amazing for your life. It can't happen any other way. Um, I, as, I, as I look back on life right now, I, I'm just telling you, it is such an amazing thing to let God dictate your future. And it's so amazing to let him include you in on the drama of the ages, literally. Because what you do for the kingdom of God is never going to pass away. You'll be rewarded based on it when you stand before our maker one day. And, and that's why we do what we do. That's why we give an offering. That's why we serve God. That's why we share God with other people. That's why we bear fruits in this life is because it's eternal. So many of the things that we do are going to pass away with our last breath. There'll be some memory of it perhaps, but it ultimately will fade away and, and you've spent your whole life for nothing. But here's the deal. Whatever you do in the kingdom of God lasts forever. So cool. I'm, apparently, I'm more excited about it than you are, but I'm just saying, it's just really awesome. Um, these principles of Scripture stand as an antidote to the fear that keeps many of us from the relationship with God that he has invested so much to make possible. That fear is this. I could never live up to God's expectations. How many of you would agree with that? Just let me see your hands. I am going to have an altar call and cast a lying spirit out of you right now. How many of you have a fear you cannot please God? Let me see. Yeah. Most of us. Because it's built in. We know we're not perfect and we think God is and he is. But here's the deal. God never expected you to be perfect. So your assumption is absolutely correct. You cannot please God based on your capabilities. What is abundantly clear, however, is that we are called to become what we natively have no power to achieve. You can't do it. You cannot do it. Look at your neighbor and say, you're toast. You are toast. You're not going to get that done. Kelly, we just settle that right now. We are not going to get that done. However, however, there's something called vicariousness. That's when you experience something based on another's actions. Let me tell you, your righteousness and mine is vicarious. We cannot earn it. Here's the problem. Some people have real strong will. And here's the problem. If you offend or break the law in any point at any time, you have broken the whole thing. So before you were even aware of it, you were toast. You were done. There was no solution, no, no amount of, of well-kept uh, ideas, first of the year, resolutions. None of those things are going to fix this problem you're toast. But Jesus came. And something has changed. So we must die to any pretense that anyone born of flesh and blood can, by their own efforts, become acceptable to God or righteous. We're all in this thing together. And that seems cruel, that seems bad. But the good news is this you don't have to wonder. 
And and you don't have to worry which philosophy will get me there. Lighting candles to this one or or, or bowing to that one or, or, or mumbling the name of that one. I wonder which one it is. All religions are equal in that. They're going nowhere. But there's one relationship that is. God, God made us all sure that we were sinners in need of a God. And that he sent God to us. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's the one. It's simple. He shines like a light in a dark place. Nobody else makes the claims he makes. What a peace that comes over us when we realize that we don't have to wonder anymore. That we don't have to sort out our own way. It's been settled. It's totally been settled. As we were singing about Jesus this morning, I just I felt such gratitude wash over me that I don't have to wonder. I don't have to be worried that I can know that he has made us acceptable in the beloved. What a wonderful knowledge to have. So here's the deal. By dying, one possibility opens to us of being born again. Born again is a phrase that comes from from a wonderful illustration. I know many of you have heard me say this, but to me it's just so beautiful. Back in the day in which the scriptures were written, adoption was a very different thing than it is today. Adoption happened when a householder had a slave And a slave was a slave because if he'd been in debt, he might have killed somebody, he might have done something wrong, he might have been, you know, he he might have been a criminal. But he was purchased by a homeowner or a landowner, and he became a servant. And in his servanthood, he would change many times and become very valuable. In fact, he would be thought of as higher in order of importance in a home than even those born in that home. And so at some point in time, that householder or landowner might decide, I want to adopt that person into my house. And the process would be like this. They would take him down to the magistrate where the record of this person's crimes or debts would be written down with their name, the the nature of the debt, and the punishment, and the owner that now owned them. You may be sitting here today and you realize that if you went down to the magistrate's office, there would be a number of things said about you. All of us would have to understand that the word sinner would be attached to our name because we've missed the mark. But when that homeowner or that householder would take that person down there, they would look up that name, they would ask some pertinent questions, and the person would say, I want to adopt this person. And the magistrate would then take a red pen, red ink, and mark through the whole description, including the name of that person. So in effect, in the eyes of the Roman Empire, that person and what they had done in their life ceased to exist. And they would write a new name. And right beside it, an inscription that said in the Greek, born again. 
I'm telling you, folks, there is, a, there is a name written down in heaven. Whenever a person receives Jesus as Lord, and it doesn't take into account anything that you've ever done because you've been adopted into the name above all names. You're, you're a derivative of the name above all names, the king, the king of glory, King Jesus, the one we sang about this morning. You're in this book only because of his beneficence, because of what he did for you. And the Father looks upon you and all he sees is red. He can't see through the blood. He can't remember what you did or did not do before because it has been obliterated by the blood of Jesus. We just ought to build three tabernacles right there and just, you know, just, just go for it. Wow, wow. How could we not love him? How could we not love him, folks? I'm spending time with this today. It's the most basic of all basics, but I'm spending time with this because this issue hamstrings us all the time. I've been doing this for 40-ish years. And I can tell you this, that most people don't think they're worthy to do anything for God. They don't feel like God really is all that excited about them. When we call for volunteers, a lot of people say, ah, you know, I'm really not, that's really not who I am. And I'm here to tell you today, it is who you are. You'll come alive when you start to live in your heritage. Some of us still live in like, and we're living in practical agnosticism because we don't feel like we're worthy to, you know, what I mean is this, when somebody gets sick, we say, well, you better get to the doctor right away. Well, you know what? You are a member of a covenant team which we're told to lay hands on the sick, and the sick will recover. I, uh, two weeks ago, I had a man come to me in this very room right here at this step and told me that I came up to have prayer not too long ago, and you and somebody else laid hands on me, and I had cancer. I now have proof that that cancer no longer exists in my body. And I, I tell you what, I left my halo at home that day. It has nothing to do with how cool you are. It has nothing to do with how well you've gotten down charismatic talk. It has everything to do with who's in you and who has commissioned you to be what you cannot be by yourself. That's the beauty of this whole thing. If we were limited to what we could produce, this world would be in a mess. Even more than it is now, we're seeing the fruit of that. And I'm just here to tell you today, I want to debunk that with every fiber of my being, I want to debunk that. But the scripture has confined that all are under sin and that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. That is, that is Galatians 3.22 and then 24 and 25. The point is this. We all look back to the law and we judge ourselves by how we're doing according to the law. And it's amazing how we work a hybrid. We know we're saved by grace, but now we've got to get to doing the law. Let me just say this. 
If you're walking in the Spirit, you will not disobey the law. But you can't keep from disobeying the law by just trying to keep from disobeying the law. It has to be an internal job. The Holy Spirit enables us to walk in the Spirit. And if you're walking in the Spirit, you cannot at the same time be walking in the flesh. So what's my job? Yield to the Spirit. He's going to say, let's don't do that. And he's always going to even go beyond that. He's going to give you the desire not to do that. Otherwise, we're just in a religion of will worship. I worship that person because their will is so strong and they don't... No. That is, that's fleshly. But love draws me to walk after the Spirit. If I'm so thankful for what the Lord has done for me and I realize whatever good ever happens is because I'm loving him and he's loving me back and we're walking together in this thing and we get to, and ultimately God changes your want to. He works in us to will, that's the want to, and to do of his good pleasure. That is the testimony we all want. I remember calling my dad when I was in college and telling him what had happened to me and, and how I'd come to know the Lord and what, a, what, it was, what was going on in my life. And the, my dad, in his own inimitable way, said, sounds to me, son, like God's changed your want to. And that was exactly right. I wasn't just, just doing it because I had to do it. And that's still the case today. What a wonderful thing to get to do what you really want to do. And God changes that. And so just be encouraged. If you're not quite there yet today, it is going to happen for you. Uh, i got to be done here in about 13 minutes. Mm. Would you all let me go? I just need to get this done. <laughs> Being born by faith <clears throat> then must be followed by living by faith. This is where the weak become strong. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah foresaw this day in which we are now live, and he wrote this. He gives power to the weak, and to those that have no might, he increases strength. That's Isaiah 40, 29. Paul the apostle later penned these words out of his own personal experience. I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. He understood something that we don't usually talk about much, but... When I am weak, he is strong. When I'm going through difficulties, there's a vacuum created that's beyond my capability, and God chooses then to give me grace so that I can walk through that situation in such a way that people say, wow, how how did you do that? And whose glory is that then? They've seen us in action before. But now all of a sudden we are carrying some grace on us that allow us to be something we are not natively. And who gets the glory for that? The Lord does. And that's really how this thing is supposed to work. The key thought here is that self-confidence can be as much of a hindrance to seeing God work through us as self-righteousness is to salvation. If you think you're righteous, it's impossible to be saved. If you think you can do it without God, then probably you will. But it will be 
of your effort, it will be flesh. What's born of the flesh is flesh. So God sometimes allows us to go through difficult places and things where we're in over our head so that we can then acquiesce to his will and walk in the spirit in that situation and grace is given to us because that's what answers faith. Grace answers faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. So when I get into, into a mess and I don't know how I'm going to get out of it, I don't know how I'm going to, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And I've had this problem all my life and I've had that problem all my life and now I got this and faced, I'm in over my head. But I say, Jesus, help me. And suddenly I am given an option as to how to walk one step. I may not have the whole road, but I can obey the one thing I know. And one thing leads to another thing, and another thing leads to another thing, and that's the way this thing works out. So that's why we call it walking in the Spirit. Not transforming in the Spirit. You walk into it. One decision at a time. And most of us know the one decision. Most of us know what we should do, the right thing to do. And when we do it, it's amazing what God does. We should always remember that God is not ultimately hindered by our weakness, but he is greatly hampered by our reliance on self. And here we are, self-improvement people. The problem with self-improvement is faulty workmanship. A prime example is Moses. He was educated, privileged, seemingly a born leader of men. He caught God's passion for the deliverance of his people from slavery. Being full of self-importance, he kills an Egyptian out of his own zeal that he has to run for his life. Forty years later, we meet with him again. He's now living in self-imposed exile on the backside of the desert in Midian, where he manages a bunch of sheep for his father-in-law. The difficult years since his arrogant failure have eroded any previous estimate of his capabilities. He could not remotely imagine in his wildest dreams what he was about to become. As we read about the encounter with God at the burning bush, we find a man who would appear to have a huge inferiority complex. God nearly has to drag him to his destiny where he empowers him to do what had been in his heart long before he understood the ways of God. Find that in Exodus 4. I wish I had time to read that and go through that with you. But the bottom line is, this this leader of men had become a guy that couldn't talk very well. He he stuttered. That's what the original languages would tell us. He stuttered. I'm slow of speech. And and he was was trying to talk himself out or talk God out of anything. He didn't know what anything was yet, but he was still trying to back away from this because he was a murderer. And he had been in isolation for so long, he couldn't function in that society anymore. And he didn't know what God was asking him, but he knew he wasn't the man. Can I just say that sometimes God picks the one that's least likely? One stands before you right now. It isn't about what you bring to the party. It's about who you come to the party with. In the book of Judges. We meet another unlikely hero by the name of Gideon. An extended time of oppression had reduced this man 
uh, born to an influential family to just another frustrated victim of circumstance, just living in survival mode. God sends his angel to greet him with the greeting, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. He is down threshing wheat in an old hole in the ground because every time that they get wheat and, and, and thresh it, the Midianites come and take it all. And here he is in a hole threshing wheat. You don't do that. He's hiding, just getting by. He's in survival mode. He's adapted to a life of lack. And God comes to him, and what does he say? The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. The Lord knew what was in him and what he was ready to put in him. And so God speaks of those things that are not as though they were. When we are called saints in the Scripture, that's speaking of things that are not as though they were because it's a, it's a status we're moving into uh, because of the work of Jesus, but we haven't quite fleshed it all out yet. But God calls us what he calls us. And when God calls you what he calls you, it doesn't matter what anybody else calls you or if anybody else calls you. He said, I'm going to be with you. Gideon responds with a self-depreciating analysis of his potential to be the right man for the job. The Lord's messenger does not dispute his conclusion. He just says, I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. And we know what happened. A whole nation was saved. What about King David? When we meet him, he is disdained by his, fathers and his, by his father and his brothers. But Samuel the prophet asked for all of Jesse's eight sons to appear before him. They did not even call David. Later on, David said, I, my, my, my mother was a sinner. I don't know what that meant exactly. But most theologians, and I am among them, and I'm not a theologian necessarily, but I'm saying I believe that he was the product of adultery. That's why he was not called. He was ashamed to his father. Because when the greatest man in the nation shows up and says, bring all your boys, I want to meet them. I've got something to say. You bring them all. And not this time. They did not even think to call David. He was disdained by his family. We saw that later, the way his brothers treated him. But Samuel said, we're not sitting down to eat until he's here. And when he walked in the door, he had no credentials. He had done nothing. Maybe he was an illegitimate child in a time when that was not okay. But as soon as he walked in, the Lord says, that's him. Arise and anoint him. And when he was anointed, he became like another man. It wasn't very long until there was a 10-foot tall giant laying with a stone buried in his forehead which David consequently cut off and became a leader of a nation. I'm telling you, you never know what's in a person because it's, God hasn't put it there yet. It's literally hard for us to imagine the greatest king Israel ever had as having such an inauspicious beginning, yet once anointed, he became the greatest warrior king Israel ever knew, and a man after God's own heart on top of that. The heroes of the New Testament are no different. All 12 disciples were unremarkable when Jesus selected them. Each one would have been passed over as common and unqualified for most leadership roles and would never have been likely candidates to assume even the most menial duties in the temple. But in the end, all but one changed their world and by extension ours as well. 
When Paul the Apostle was called by the Lord, he was in the very act of committing great atrocities against the church. Yet God used him so mightily in conjunction with the disciples that they were able to withstand incredible hardship and persecution and build the foundation upon which the worldwide church would be built. There are several principles I believe we should allow the Holy Spirit to deeply engrave in our hearts this morning. So follow with me here quickly. The need. The need is almost always greater than my natural resources. John 15.5 says, without me, you can do nothing. How much is nothing? It's not even a relative term. It is nothing. The work. The work is almost greater than what I can accomplish alone. Ephesians 4.16, the whole body joined and knit together by that which every joint supplies. In other words, everyone carries a part of essential, that is essential to intended success. Everybody does. The power. The power is necessary to accomplish kingdom business, and it's beyond me. 2 Corinthians 4.7, one of my favorite verses. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that's flesh, that's cheap pots, if you will, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. If you say, I'm just really common and I'm, 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 I'm kind of invisible and I don't matter, oh man, let me just tell you, God said, that was the one I'll take right there. I will pour myself into that person and what's in that pot will, will far outstrip and, and overweigh what the pot is itself. Because you know, when people drink from that pot, they're not interested in the pot. They're interested in what's inside it. Believe me, that's what he sees in you. Finally, the reason for these deficits in our lives not being such a big deal is so that people will see us performing beyond our capacities and give the credit to God. Matthew 5, 16, it says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The only way that's going to happen is if your good works outstrip your capabilities. Now people say, wow, if God could do that through them, hmm, I believe he could do it through me. And it's the truth. It's the promise. It's the will of God. This is the essence of success in this paradoxical kingdom. Do you understand what I'm saying? That people would see your good works and immediately turn and glorify the Father. Lord, you've done a wonderful thing in them. Everybody, how many of you are breathing? Let me just get a survey. Some of you are not because you'll never raise your hand. I know that already. You're dead. I know that. You're just, someone propped you up. If you are breathing, you are qualified for everything I've said today. If you're breathing. And if you're willing to die. If you're willing to die to yourself and become alive to God, this is your future. 